0: Well, as we uh, come to God's Word this morning, I just open with a question. Do you know that one of the most important things that you can do today is to express gratitude to Christ? And yes, I mean one of the most important, like top of the list important things that you can do today is to express gratitude to Jesus. Why do I say this? Several reasons. First and foremost, it's because gratitude is one of the first signs of spiritual life in a believer. In other words, to express gratitude to God is a sign of, an evidence of, and confirms our own conversion. That we indeed have been redeemed and therefore we praise. The scriptures are clear that on one hand, God's people are a thankful people. They sing his praises. And on the other hand, fallen mankind, those who don't know Christ, the unregenerate, are not thankful. What characterizes them is that they don't give thanks to God, their creator. In Romans chapter 1, verse 21, the apostle Paul indicts the whole human race By saying that we show our unrighteousness. We exhibit and display the fact that at our core we are sinners by the fact that we fail to honor God and to give thanks to him as God. Failed to give thanks. In other words, ingratitude to God is a sign of someone's fallen nature. Author Oz Guinness has written that, song, that Romans 1, uh, 121, the verse I just alluded to, is a sober reminder that rebellion against God does not begin with the clenched fist of atheism, but with the self-satisfied heart of the one for whom thank you is redundant. Ingratitude begins this slide. rebellion against God. But on the other side of the coin, as we've already alluded to, we see that gratitude is fundamental to those who know the Lord. When they have Christ, praise and thanksgiving come out of the soul. This was the case of an old woman, it is told, of 17th century England. A bishop was making pastoral visits to the people in his care, and he came upon the most wretched shack that he had seen, But coming from this shack, he heard the most joyous praise. And as he looked in the window, he saw a woman in extreme poverty, sitting by herself on a stool before her, simply a piece of blackened bread and a cup of water. But as she sat there, she had her eyes closed and her hands lifted to heaven, and she repeatedly exclaimed, "'What?' All this, and Jesus Christ too? She had a heart of thanksgiving to Christ, no matter what her circumstances. Indeed, thanksgiving is the expression of the redeemed. And yet we can find ourselves, even as believers in Christ, discouraged, depressed, and discontented. And therefore, we need to be reminded this morning of the necessity of practicing gratitude. And that's what our passage will do for us this morning. I'd invite you to turn with me, if you haven't already, to Luke chapter 17. The Gospel of Luke chapter 17. If you don't have a Bible, you can find this passage on the Pew Bible directly in front of you on page 1041. If you've been with us the last two weeks, you know that we've been using this new year to cover a sermon series I've entitled Old Lessons for a New Year old lessons for a new year. And in it, we've been looking at these opening verses of Luke chapter 17. We have not been taught revolutionary lessons, but again, they are old lessons that we need to be reminded of. Two weeks ago, we looked at dealing rightly with sin. What are we to do when we see others around us in the community of faith uh, showing their sin? And Jesus taught us how to deal graciously With one another, confronting and forgiving. Last week we saw how easy it is for the temptation to creep into our own souls that God owes us something because of all the service that we've rendered unto him. But Jesus teaches us that service, uh, service to God means we should do it without thinking of something that we should get from him that just because we serve the Lord with our lives doesn't mean that God owes us something. It's all of grace that God gives us anything. We are only unworthy servants. We are unworthy slaves of Christ. We do it all. We do all that is commanded, and we do it with humility. And that theme of humility really continues on into our passage today as we look at true gratitude that is modeled by one individual. So let's begin by reading our text. Follow along as I I read Luke chapter 17, verses 11 through 19. It says, On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee, and as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Thus ends the reading of God's word. May God impress its truths upon all our hearts. In these verses this morning, we are going to see four characteristics of true gratitude. Four characteristics of true gratitude that I pray will prompt each of us to live with true thankfulness to Christ. I pray that we learn and are reminded again this morning of how gratitude should stem from our hearts based upon all that Jesus has done for us. That you may learn to thank Jesus for all that he's done for you. Let's look first. The first characteristic of gratitude that we see in this text is that gratitude is a response to mercy from God. Gratitude is a response to mercy from God. In verses 11 through 14, Verse 11, our passage begins with a geographical statement. One that we could easily skip over. He was, Jesus was passing along between Samaria and Galilee on the way to Jerusalem. First, let's note the goal of his travels. Where is he headed? He's headed to Jerusalem. Now you might think, oh, well yeah, of course, you know, this is Bible times. People go to Jerusalem, right? But this is a, a particular note that Luke is giving to us. He recorded in chapter 9, verse 51, that Jesus, in the midst of his ministry, going about Galilee, begins to turn his face directly towards Jerusalem. He set his face like flint. He was going to be undeterred. He had one goal ahead of him, and he was headed that direction to Jerusalem. And you go, okay, big deal. This was a goal towards the cross. He And so between Luke 9.51 all the way through Luke 19.44, Jesus is on this journey, this road to Jerusalem. It's not until chapter 19 that he actually arrives in Jerusalem. But Luke wants to make sure we don't lose sight of this fact through this narrative from chapter 9 all the way to chapter 19, he doesn't want us to lose sight of the fact that Jesus has his sights set on the cross and on Jerusalem. And so he reminds us periodically in chapter 13, verse 22, he reminded us that he was making his way to Jerusalem. And now here again in chapter 17, he reminds us that he's on his way to Jerusalem. And again, just so you know that Jesus has, what he has on his mind as he's headed there, look over into Luke 18, just for a moment. Luke 18 Jesus knew exactly what was going to take place to him when he stepped foot in that city of Jerusalem. And yet, he continued to head towards Jerusalem. And so Luke doesn't want us to lose sight of the fact all these miracles, all this teaching, all these things that we read about from Luke 9.51 to 19.44, all these things are all in the shadow of the cross. So then looking back in Luke 17.11, In our passage this morning. Luke tells us that Jesus was also passing between Samaria and Galilee. Samaria was a region of Israel that was in the middle part of the country. Galilee was in the northern part of the country and and Jerusalem was in the southern part of the country. So he's making his way to the south but he's passing between the northern and central regions between Samaria and Galilee. If we stitch together the gospel accounts What took place directly between verse 10 and verse 11 of Luke is the whole narrative of John chapter 11, where Jesus goes and raises his friend Lazarus from the dead. He goes to Bethany, which is right near Jerusalem, but you'll know it's not actually Jerusalem proper. He gets close, he raises Lazarus from the dead, and then there is so much pressure, Jesus knows it's not the right time, and so he goes up, north of Jerusalem to a town of Ephraim and there he spends some days until the the things die down a little bit. From there it seems that he heads north up through Samaria up to where our passage picks up here and he begins to uh, pick up some pilgrims that are making their way down to Jerusalem for Passover. They're leaving Galilee because the Jews don't like the Samaritans, and the Samaritans don't like the Jews. They're not going to go right through the country. They instead cut through the Herod Valley that goes out to the Jordan Rift Valley, following the Jordan River all the way down, and then they make their way up through Jericho into Jerusalem. Jesus here is in that Herod Valley, no doubt picking up this crowd of pilgrims that are heading to the Jordan Rift Valley and begin their, their journey south. When he will finally enter Jerusalem this final time. Now verse 12 tells us that Jesus entered a village. We don't know what village it is. It's not pertinent to the story. Luke doesn't give us many names of villages, but just that he entered a village. And as he does so, he is accosted by ten men who are plagued with leprosy. Ten men who are plagued with leprosy. This is the only instance in the Gospels in which we see that lepers, those who were diagnosed and had the, uh, the diagnosis of leprosy that they actually hung together, they, that they gathered in bands and seemed to help one another. Now, biblical leprosy has often, for many years, been identified as, uh, along with what we know today, as Hansen's disease. Hansen's disease is named after a doctor with the last name Hansen, who discovered a bacterium that was upon those who had uh, this certain condition it's a condition where people lose their ability to feel pain. They no longer have the ability in their nerves to feel pain. And so because of that, they begin to uh, uh, end up deforming themselves through repeated injury because they cannot feel when they are hurting themselves. It's a unique and horrible horrible kind of suffering. But biblical scholars and and along with uh, medical doctors no longer believe that the This is a correct identification to identify biblical leprosy with Hansen's disease. Leprosy, biblically speaking, is described very carefully in Leviticus chapters 13 and 14. These were instructions given to the priests who were responsible for diagnosing leprosy. The priests of Israel were the ones that were to examine the different kinds of lesions and spots that arrived on people's skins. They were to go to the priest. The priest was to say, okay, show me the spot. They were to uh, look on the back and identify the different colors of skin, the different rays, the different scaliness of it, all these different things. And the priest then would have to give a designation of leprosy or not. And so Leviticus 13 and 14 give those detailed descriptions. And it accords best with what we know as, really, these various skin diseases. They don't really match the symptoms of Hansen's disease. They actually seem, uh, biblical scholars believe, to better describe the conditions such as psoriasis or lupus, ringworm, or favus, these different uh, skin diseases. Now the Mosaic Law those chapters I just alluded to, require that those who are diagnosed with leprosy are no longer allowed to remain in the camp, to remain in the village, but then are relegated to living outside the camp. They are not allowed to live near people and because everything they touched became contaminated. Everything they touched became impure or unclean. Now it's important to note, particularly in our COVID era, that the reason that they quarantined these leprous people was not so much because they feared um, others getting the disease. They quarantined because they feared of becoming impure or unclean. In other words, the law was primarily concerned with purity and cleanliness before the eyes of the law and only secondarily if there's other benefits of health. The idea was to keep the people of Israel clean and not be contaminated with the uncleanliness or impurity of a leper who is perpetually unclean. there's no way for a leper to suddenly become unclean and re-enter society unless they are completely healed of their leprosy. And so in our text, we see 10 lepers who are here either in the village or most likely out directly outside as they see Jesus walking in and they lift up their voices. They make a great noise calling out to Jesus. They can't get n- up close. And so that from a distance, they have to shout. And, and, and I doubt that they were all synchronized in their shouting. I bet they were all calling out in their own ways, trying to raise their voices to get Jesus' attention. But, but we need to consider the state of these men. What was their lives like? Well, again, consider you have a man in his middle age and he suddenly notices something on his skin. He goes to the priest. They do the test. They wait the seven days and find out that he is diagnosed with leprosy. There is a sense in which he essentially be- gets the, the statement of death upon him. He is, has to immediately leave from his home, leave from the village. He can no longer be with his family, with his loved ones. If he touched anything or if anyone touched him, they would have to go through the same purification treatment as if they touched a corpse. Therefore, people avoided them like the dead. They were as the walking dead among the society. They had to beg for food, beg for money. They may have been provided food by family members, but the family members would have to drop it and leave it In order to keep their distance. They were relegated to a life of seclusion until and unless they were healed in some miraculous way by God. And so we can understand the great desperation that these men were in, separated from their families, no doubt putting a a burden upon their families if they were the sole provider for their families and now the wife and children are having to fend for themselves and potentially beg themselves in order to make ends meet. But here we have ten men who are together calling out to Jesus. They raised their voices loud to him. They were not rude and demanding. Rather, they were desperate and humble. And they call out to him. You'll see it in verse uh, 13. Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Obviously, the reputation of Jesus had preceded him. They heard that there was a man who was walking around now for several years who could heal. And he happens to come to their village, the place where they lived. And so they no doubt saw this as their only chance to be healed. And so, with desperation, they gather together. They all move as close as they can, and they begin to shout with all the muster that they can. They believe that Jesus could heal them, and so they cried out for help, cried out for mercy. You note that he—they are asking for mercy. They realize that they were in a deplorable condition. They were desperate. They realized there was nothing that they could do to change their predicament. They couldn't heal themselves. They couldn't clean themselves. And there was no reason why Jesus should go out of their way to them. There's nothing that they had done to earn this. They needed mercy. And that's what they asked for. Jesus, you'll see in verse 14, it says, When he saw them, when he saw them, have to wonder, was there a crowd of people around Jesus? And there's this this hubbub of of activity as they're entering the village and all of a sudden he hears over, over the roar of the crowd this, Lord, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And he's kind of looking around and then, boom, he sees them. He sees them. And when he sees them, he turns to them did, did, he have to, did he have to wave his hands? Did he have to quiet him down? And he says, go and show yourselves to the priests. Now, this might seem like a, a funny command and it may have seemed stranger to the men. This command would be appropriate for those who have been healed of leprosy. But the moment Jesus speaks these words, you'll note that they still were covered in leprosy. The healing had not taken place yet, and yet Jesus is saying to turn and go, show yourself to a priest. You'll note by this command, though, Jesus is affirming the Mosaic Law. He did not come to throw it aside, but come to accomplish it, as he says in Matthew chapter 5. And so he instructs the lepers to go show themselves to the priests as Leviticus 14 made it clear. They were the, ol- the priests were the only ones that could examine the lepers and declare somebody clean. And so these men, upon hearing the words, I, I, I envision there's a little bit of hesitation as they look at one another. And they go, yeah, he told us to go. And so they begin to turn and obey Jesus. It didn't make sense at the time. Why should we go to the priests now? We are still leprous. But they believed. And they went. And so they trusted that by the time they could show up at the priests, that they would be healed, that it would be different. And this is exactly what happens. The last phrase of verse 14. Look at it. And as they went. They were cleansed. Jesus miraculously heals these ten men from a distance. He doesn't have to touch them. He doesn't even have to say the words, be healed. He heals them as they turn and go. There's even like a delay. You know, Jesus speaks words, go and show yourself to the priests. How many minutes pass before they turn and when they actually experience healing in their bodies? We don't know. But truly, God had heard their cry and mercifully answered their prayer by providing cleansing through Jesus, his son. And so from this first scene of the miracle here described, we see that the gratitude that will later be shown by the one man, the Samaritan, was a response to this mercy that all of these men received from God through Jesus. It was God's work of cleansing through Jesus that spawned the gratitude in this man. Without God's mercy, they would have remained lost and diseased. And this is a reminder for us today, friends, that the starting place for our gratitude is also the mercy of God in Christ. Now, we are not diseased with leprosy like these men were. But make make no mistake that we as humanity, fallen from God, we are diseased with a greater problem and that is the problem of sin. That we, too, have no way to clean ourselves, no way to cleanse ourselves, no way to change our own hearts to rid ourselves of this disease. Sure, we're not outcasts from society like these these men were, but we are outcasts from God's presence on our own. God's eyes are too holy to look upon evil. We on ourselves cannot bring any sort of righteousness before him because we have none. Whenever we, whenever we dig into our pockets and try to bring out any sort of goodness that we might have, it's filthy rags, the Bible says. And so we, we cannot bring anything before him. We are plagued with a, with a disease worse than leprosy. And we cannot heal ourselves. Without Christ, we are lost and destitute. And so we are placed in the same position as these 10 lepers that all, what can we do? What can sinners do who find themselves in such a plight, in such a predicament? Well, friends, we follow the same thing that these lepers do, and that is we cry out to Jesus for mercy. Lord, Master, have mercy on us. There's nothing that I have done to earn your mercy, to earn your cleansing, to earn your salvation, but I'm asking that you would be able to heal me out of your mercy, And as we look to Jesus' mercy, we then are able to find the impetus for our gratitude. We must see afresh, friends, our desperate situation. Believer, you who have been transformed by Jesus, be reminded of the lost condition of your soul without Christ. Be reminded of all that Jesus saved you from, who you were before he showered his mercy upon you and transformed your heart and life. If we're to grow in gratitude for what he's done, we must remember where it is that we have been pulled from. He gave you new life. He cleansed your heart and made it clean. He forgave your sin. He redeemed you and reconciled you to God. Why did he do this? Not because he owed you anything, but simply because he wanted to display his mercy. Mercy is the genesis of all true gratitude in the Christian. Mercy is the genesis of all true gratitude in the Christian. And so God's mercy must be the spark of the fire of our own gratitude. We must look afresh upon the mercy of God's our friend this morning. I appreciate the hymn, The old hymn, Thy Mercy My God, it captures the gratitude and joy that should spring from the heart that has experienced God's mercy. The hymn says this, it says, Thy mercy, my God, is the theme of my song, the joy of my heart and the boast of my tongue. Thy free grace alone, from the first to the last, hath won my affections and bound my soul fast. Without thy sweet mercy, I could not live here. Sin would reduce me to utter despair, but through thy free goodness, my spirits revive, and he that first made me still keeps me alive. Thy mercy is more than a match for my heart, which wonders to feel its own hardness depart. Dissolved by thy goodness, I fall to the ground and weep to the praise of the mercy I've found." And finally, great father of mercies, thy goodness I own and the covenant love of thy crucified son all praise to the spirit whose whisper divine seals mercy and pardon and righteousness mine. Friends, may we equally exult in the mercy of God in each one of our hearts and lives for what he has done. When we do, our hearts will begin to swell with gratitude towards him. Well, let's look at the second characteristic of gratitude that we see in our text this morning. And that is, gratitude also is a rejoicing in cleansing from Jesus. A rejoicing in cleansing from Jesus. And this is similar to the first point, but this hones us in on Christ. There's a turn in the narrative from verses 15 and 16. In one sense, the miracle already has happened up through verse 14. But there's something unique that happens here in verses 15 and 16. You can imagine that all the men, once they began to realize that their bodies were healed, that the leprous spots were gone, that they were wholly clean and cleansed, that there was amazing surprise and excitement, that they were just ecstatic, that they are now healed, that they can re-enter society, that they can see their families again, no doubt there's tears of joy, there's excitement, and they're moving quickly to go see the priest. They are excited about what lies ahead for them. And they move rapidly that direction. But in the midst of that joy, chaotic joy, one of them is suddenly overcome with not with what's ahead of him, but a man that he left behind him. And so before anything else, he wants to see Jesus. Look at verse 15 with me. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. He figured, I can go to the priest later, but there's something that I've got to do. That's more urgent and more appropriate is, I have got to go back to this man who just healed me. He could have praised God as he went, but he felt a need to turn and to praise Jesus specifically. Why? Because he recognized that in the person of Jesus, God himself was present in his midst. Why do I say that? Well, first, let's just note in these verses the, the, the way that Luke, the author, and this, this man merges between praising God and thanking Jesus. It's not that he's doing two separate things. He's doing the same thing, thanking Jesus and praising God. He, praising God with a loud voice, fell on his face, giving thanks to Jesus. It's one and the same. He's praising God, giving glory to God as he thanks Jesus. In other words, the glory that he believed deserved to go to God alone, he was giving to Jesus Christ. And so he believes that it was not idolatrous to give the glory to God, to Jesus, because Jesus was God in human flesh. Notice, that he, too, that he falls at Jesus' feet. He doesn't just stand there, but he goes down prostrate in worship before Jesus. This is a position of worship, and he recognizes that he is in the presence of majesty and royalty, and he bows in adoration and humility, and notice that Jesus accepts it. He doesn't say, get up, In Revelation, John falls before an angel and begins to praise him, and the angel says, get up, I'm not the one you're supposed to be worshiping. Jesus accepts this worship. But thirdly, this leper does these things because in the Old Testament, it was very clear that if someone got a diagnosis of leprosy, there was no way, humanly speaking, for them to be healed. God alone had to intervene. God alone had to be the healer and the cleanser. And so, when these men are healed of leprosy, the only one that can take credit, the only one that can be identified as the one who did this healing is God himself. And yet, who was the one that spoke the words? It was Jesus. Therefore, this man, I believe, recognized Jesus to be Yahweh, the God of Israel. And isn't there such a sweetness in this man's response? There's a sobriety there's a joy and there's a personal nature as he, before he had to stay at a distance because of his disease, and here he falls down at Jesus' feet in joy and humility, praising God for all that he's done. It's interesting to note that this is the only reference in the Gospels that somebody thanks Jesus. They praise Jesus, they do other things, but the word thanks, thanking him, this is the only place It's documented. But Luke here adds a stunning note at the end of verse 16. He was a Samaritan. Now to our ears today, we, that doesn't make such a big deal. In, the, in that time, it was a huge deal. We don't know the ethnicity of the other nine, but it's reasonable to assume that they were Jews. They were natural born Jews. This one man was a Samaritan. Therefore, what we see is that the outsider, the Samaritan, came and worshipped before Jesus. The outside of the Samaritan recognized who Jesus was. The outside of the Samaritan saw something that the natural-born Jews failed to see. This is what was shocking. This is what was amazing. The Jews failed to see that Yahweh was in their midst. And yet one of Israel's antagonistic neighbors saw what the others couldn't. He saw the glory of Jesus Christ. Now the Samaritans, they were Uh, despised by the Jews because they were half-breeds as they said. They were half Jews, half Gentiles. They didn't follow all the Old Testament. And so there was a palpable animosity between the two groups. And so for this man to be an exemplar was shocking to the people of that day and for the audience of Luke's letter as well. And I believe that Luke includes it to show that Jesus's mercy was extended to those outside of the Jews. He included it so that Gentiles like us would be encouraged to follow Jesus too, that his message was not just for Israel. His message is to all the nations, particularly at the time that Luke writes this, which is after Jesus has ascended to heaven and he's commissioned his disciples to go out to all the nations and to make disciples. This Jesus who walked the, the dust of Israel, walked upon the ground of Israel, is the very Jesus that calls all people everywhere, even Gentiles today, to follow him and to confess him, just like this Samaritan did. Jesus' mercy, praise God, extends to outsiders like you and me. But friends, too often our gratitude is a far cry from what we see here in the Samaritans. For one, our gratitude isn't immediate. We too often wait too long. We've God's done something, we prayed for it. God, please, please, please. He answers the prayer. And then we go day one, day two, year five. And we fail to turn that praise back to him. One commentator made this observation. He said, if people do not give thanks quickly, they usually do not do so at all. If they don't give thanks quickly, they usually do not do so at all. The second way that our gratitude fails this is our gratitude isn't very loud. This man's praise was heard by all around. He was unashamed to offer gratitude and praise to Jesus Christ. He didn't whisper. He didn't keep it contained. And so I agree with the old Puritan commentator who said, our thanks should be larger and louder than our requests. And yet how often do we flip that around? We cry out, God, please help! And then he gives it to us, and we're, oh great! And we move on. I rub the genie in the bottle and I got what I wanted and so now I'll move on satisfied. And it shows that our hearts are not really delighting in him, which leads us to our third ways that our gratitude is, is different from this man's is that our gratitude isn't worshipful it's not worshipful because friends there's a way to offer gratitude with our lips that only takes delight in the gift and not the giver where we are so thankful for what we've received but we aren't truly thankful to the one who gave it. And so there's a way for us to say thank you even to God with very little reverence for him. Of course, we can see this in, our, in children as they receive a birthday gift and the parents are like, now go say thank you to grandma and grandpa. And they're looking at the gift. Thank you, grandma. And then they come back. They say the words. And of course, we're training and, and I'm not disparaging that. But, The reality in the human nature for us to be so enthralled with the gift and for us to forget the giver can happen in the Christian life as well. But the fourth way that our gratitude falls short is that it it isn't Jesus-centered. It isn't Jesus-centered. Too often we give thanks to God in a general way and we don't identify Jesus as the channel through which these blessings come. But make no mistake, friends, for you as a believer in Christ to receive any blessings from God, it comes because it was blood bought. It's because Jesus died upon the cross for you to be able to receive these blessings, and therefore praise goes to him. And so we must consider all that Jesus has done for us through his death, burial, and resurrection, through his creating of the universe, through his sustaining of our lives, through his transforming of our lives. We should not be silent in our gratitude to Christ. There's nothing that we could do in order to cleanse ourselves. In Jesus alone is that healing found. We can only be cleansed by the blood of Jesus. So I'm reminded of the the hymn. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured. There where the blood of the lamb was spilt. Dark is the stain that we cannot hide. What can avail to wash it away? Look, there is flowing a crimson tide. Whiter than snow you may be today. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. Friends, we should be able to sing loudly and clearly and thank God for the grace that we've received through Christ, for the cleansing that we've received from him. The stain that we had upon our souls is gone because of what he did for us. And so we should not be shut up in our praise. We should continue to declare it to all. We should be ready to give a defense for the hope that is in us. We've seen so far that gratitude is a response to mercy from God, that it's a rejoicing and cleansing in Jesus. Thirdly, we're going to see now that this gratitude is a rarity among people. Gratitude, true gratitude is a rarity among people. And we see this in Jesus' rhetorical questions in verses 17 and 18. Look at him with me. Jesus has this man at his feet and he then answers and says, we're not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? You can sense in Jesus' words, there's a tone of sorrow. There's a tone of disappointment, even longing. Like his eyes are still looking at the horizon. W- weren't there ten? W- where are the nine? I'm sure, I'm sure their heads are going to pop up over that hill in just a moment. He desired to see them, all ten of them return. But here he has only one and at that it's a foreigner it's it's not one of his own people. And so Jesus in this you can sense the disapproval where are the nine? They should be here. They should be just as grateful and yet they're not. They by neglecting Jesus were neglecting the God of the universe. Now, these nine may have headed off with their lives. They showed themselves to the priest. They entered back into society. They joined their family. Everything seemed good. They felt no immediate repercussions for failing to go back to, to, to worship Jesus. But friends, if their unbelief, if their failure to trust in Jesus exclusively and worship him as the Son of God continued throughout the rest of their lives, then they would face a stern punishment. Because even though they received a healing from Jesus, and even though there was a good benefit that they received, if they did not trust in Jesus alone, then they did not have saving faith, and there was great judgment that was coming upon them. And isn't that the case today? That there are those who fail to give thanks to God, fail to recognize that Jesus is God's representative, that Jesus is God's son to whom every knee should bow and every tongue should confess. And if they go about their lives and think, oh, I can reject him today, and nothing bad's happened to me. I can live a great life. Everything's fine. Just like these men, they're experiencing the common grace of God. Their life moves on. Their heart continues to beat. Their lungs continue to, to breathe. They think everything's okay. But, friends, we don't live just based upon what, how we're experiencing today, but we think about the ultimate reality, we think about eternity what it will be to stand before God the judge. And the only criteria for being saved on that day is whether we have trusted in Jesus Christ, his only son. And so yes, people can try to fill their days with happiness here and not seem to experience any sort of repercussions. But the word of God is clear that judgment is coming. And yet the word of God is also clear that he has provided a way of escape. A way of salvation and it's through Jesus alone. And so as we see that this gratitude is a rarity among people, I believe that this, this, the fact that a tenth of the lepers came back is somewhat emblematic of the reality of humanity that most of humanity does not see. Most of humanity does not give thanks to Jesus. They fail to recognize God's kindness to them even in their unbelieving state. Those who truly repent and believe and bow down before Jesus are relatively few. But while we have breath, there's a chance for us to turn around and to return and to bow down at the feet of Jesus. Even today, you can turn from the path that you've been walking upon, the path away from God, trying to live life your own way without him, trying to steer, make decisions, And you can repent and turn away from that and to fall down at the feet of of Jesus and confess in your heart that Jesus is Lord and say, Lord Jesus, please have mercy upon me and save me. So the question will be for us, are we among the nine or are we among the one? Are we among the 90% or are we among the 10%? May God in his grace enable us to be among the 10%. But finally this morning, let's, Look at the fourth characteristic, fourth and final characteristic of gratitude we see in our text, and that is gratitude is a result of faith in Jesus. True gratitude is a result of faith in Jesus. The gratitude that we see expressed by this Samaritan is the result of true faith in Christ, and this is what set him apart from the other nine. You remember how we talked about the, all ten of the lepers when Jesus uh, when they called out to Jesus, they had to trust in Jesus at some level, right? They had to believe that Jesus was truly able to heal them. They had to believe that these rumors about this, he, this man who healed and that when they saw Jesus, they go, I gotta believe enough to lift up my voice and call out to him to, to draw attention to myself and to believe that he's gonna do something for me. And they seem to have done that. They believed that Jesus was the one. They called out to him. Jesus answered. They then believed and obeyed his word and turned and began to go to the priest. There was a certain level of trust and obedience that they exhibited. But there is something that sets apart those nine and the one. They, those nine, did not, in the end, have saving faith. They only went with Jesus so far. They got what they got what they could out of him and then they stopped they remind me of the parable of the soils remember there's different soils and they all represent different groups of people and how they respond differently to the gospel it's like those that the seeds the sower threw upon the rocky soil and they were able to sprout up quickly but then they weren't able to get a root and they wilted away These Jews, these nine Jewish men, trusted in Jesus partially, but they never went the whole way with him. They did not surrender their entire lives to him. They looked to him as the healer, but they didn't submit to him as the Lord. By contrast, though, the Samaritan held nothing back. After trusting Jesus' word and obeying his instruction to go, he saw the effect of Jesus' power, and he says, I owe everything to this man. I owe everything to my God. And so once he received the cleansing, the root of his faith went deeper. He became fully convinced of who Jesus was and he trusted in him completely. You'll notice verse 19. Jesus commends this man's faith. He says, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. The ESV footnote here says that it could be translated, your faith has saved you, even as some other translations have it. It's the word, the Greek word sozo for salvation, and it's not to say that his faith is what made him saved, as if his faith was a work that earned him the position of salvation, but rather his faith looked to the one who had the power to save. He trusted Jesus, and therefore he was saved by faith. And I believe that this made well or this saving, however you translate it, relates or refers to more than just bodily healing. Some would say, oh, this is Jesus just saying, well, your faith made your body better. But no, there's a difference between this man and the other nine. And I believe it's the salvation of his soul. This phrase is used only four times in the Gospel of Luke. In chapter 7, verse 50, in chapter 8, verse 48... Here, and then in 1842, and I believe in all of them, they refer to more than just physical healing. And folks, here we learn there's a huge difference between those who trust in God generally or those who go a certain way into Christianity, but those, compared to those who trust Christ wholly and specifically. Too often I ask people, how do you know you're a Christian? And they say, well, you know, God's just been so good to me. I've just, there's been so many things that have happened in my life. It's just been, you know, I, I, God's just been kind to me. And and they recognize maybe a general kindness to God, which is great, but that's where they stop. And they fail to look to the cross of Christ. They fail to look at their sin before a holy God. They fail to realize that they need salvation of their soul, not just a God who's gonna make things good for them in their life. Friends, saving faith requires that we trust wholly and completely upon Christ. We must trust in him alone. And trust in him completely. And so I say for you if you're here this morning, maybe you're considering Christianity, maybe you've you've thought about it, you've heard a lot about it, maybe you've been in the church for years. I ask you to search your own heart. Do you know Jesus Christ? Have you trusted him wholly and completely? Have you realized the depth of your own misery, the recognition that you cannot save yourself and that you must cry out to mercy to God alone? And that salvation is found in Jesus alone. You can go home today with the confidence and the reassurance that your faith has made you well. Your faith has saved you this morning. If you would trust and believe in him in this very moment, in the quietness of your heart, as you call out to him for mercy. Jesus says that all those who come to me, I will no wise cast out. He has open arms to all sinners who would love to repent and embrace him. So church, as we learn this lesson of gratitude this morning, we must recognize all the mercy that God has given to us, all that he has done for us in our lives. And then we must learn to direct that praise to Christ and to celebrate him. And so we pray with the writer George Herbert, who said this, Oh, thou hast given us so much. Mercifully grant us one more thing a grateful heart. May he do that. Let's bow together in prayer. Our God, we thank you. Indeed, we thank you. We praise you. Because you have given us so much. Most notably, you have given of your son. Your son that you did not spare, you did not keep, but you sent out of your love to display your love to us that you have mercy upon sinners. And oh God, we, we, we delight in you and we praise you because we could do nothing. We were destined for an eternity in hell because of our sin, because of the wretchedness of our souls. And yet you and your mercy reached out to us. So I pray for each one here this morning, Lord, that you would enable us to, to learn this lesson. That you would help us to see where there is the pride of our hearts and where we do not want to give gratitude to you. And may you grant us repentance that we would turn once again, praising your name and falling at Jesus' feet for all that he has done for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.